if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 3. We're actually in Exodus chapter 4. We need to backtrack a little bit, as you will see in our notes. Exodus, the way out, God's empowering presence is the title of this weekend's message. Also, grab your sermon notes out. Hey, we got a lot of work to do here this morning. You guys ready to dig in? We got a roll. And uh, so here we go. God never calls us into intimacy with him. God never calls us into intimacy with him to bless us without also sending us out to make an impact in this world, to be a blessing. So, so he calls us in to intimacy with him. By the way, the whole book is about him calling us out of enslavement, our, our Egypt, into intimacy with him. And then when he calls us into intimacy with him, he always will send us out to be a blessing to others and to this world. Also, look at your, uh, look at your sermon notes there, the next thought there. He never sends us out without also giving us all that we need in him. So he draws us up close and personal. That's what we saw in, with Moses' life last weekend. We talked about an encounter with God. Once you've encountered God, then he begins to fill you up with himself and then he sends you out. So he blesses you to be a blessing. And he never sends you out without also giving, giving us all that we need in him. And all that we need in him almost always, almost always flows through obedience rooted in faith. He's not gonna stockpile his blessing in you until you get moving. He'll initially bless you, but as you get moving, out, that's when he really begins to pour his blessing on you even that much more because you're stepping out in faith. Let me read that statement one more time. All that we need in him almost always flows through obedience rooted in faith. Now, when you consider what we have in him, all the resources that we have in him, we have no excuses for not making an impact in this world. I gave you just a few verses here, Philippians 4.13. You guys familiar with that verse? Some of you have probably memorized that verse before. Maybe you still, you still remember it. You guys know what it is? Anybody want to kind of start it off for me? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yeah, that's it. So that's a, that's a pretty powerful verse. There's another verse here, 2 Peter 1.3, another great verse, and that is his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by his glory and goodness. Through the knowledge of him, yeah, through intimacy with him, we have everything we need. For, for godliness, for life, everything in, out of that intimacy with him. Another favorite verse of mine is 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So just based on those three verses, we have no excuses, you know, really for having come into intimacy with him and then now going out, being sent out by him to be a blessing. We have a 5G process here at Desert Breeze to help you to become a fully devoted follower of Christ. And most of you are familiar with this. We walk you through this through our Game of Life class. I have the privilege of teaching that class. We had a full house this last week as we kicked it off. But the first G is a genuine Christian. Second G is a growing Christian. If you're a genuine Christian, if you're walking with Christ, 
You're going to want to be a growing Christian who's living his word. It's only natural and normal out of that overflow. You're going to be a giving and a going Christian. Giving meaning ministry. Going means missions. You're going to want to reach the world with the gospel message, and you're going to do that all for God's glory. So that kind of establishes the foundation for us this morning. We're going to pray, and then we're going to dive into the the text. We're going to do it a little bit differently uh, this morning. We're going to make the point... And then we're going to uh, read the text, and we need to backtrack back into chapter 3, and then we'll work our way into chapter 4. And by the way, you just need to know this, we're not going to get finished with all of this, so I'm going to get to the end of the study, and we're not going to be able to read the rest of it, but I'm going to give you the fill in the blanks, just so that you can take them home and study that later, okay? You guys good with that? Okay. Otherwise, we'll be here until noon, okay? You guys okay with that? Okay. I don't think so. I don't think the next crowd that's coming in would be okay with that. And so, so here we go. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray, and then we will uh, start working uh, through our notes. So, God, we are delighted to be here today. We love your presence. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When we consider the infinite and eternal wealth of resources that we have in you, we have no excuses for not being what you want us to be and doing what you want us to do. So we pray through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit. Let us, as it tells us in in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, let us lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles us so that we can run with perseverance the race you have set before us as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. In his beautiful and glorious name, we pray these things. And everyone said, amen. So... A little background here. You're probably wondering, well, why did you lay that foundation? Well, let me give, bring you up to speed if you haven't been with us thus far in our study through Exodus. The nation of Israel, the people of God, are being extremely oppressed by the Egyptians. But no matter how much they are oppressed, they seem to flourish because God knows, cares, and rules the circumstances of their lives, of our lives, for our good and his glory. And also we saw last week that God is raising up a leader uh, who is a type of Christ by the name of Moses to lead them out of enslavement. And God has called this leader Moses into intimacy with him, burning bush experience. We talked about it last weekend, encounter with God. And so he's brought him into intimacy and now he is sending him out. So he's saying, Moses, I want you to go back. He's on the backside of the desert. He's in Midian and he's a sheep herder and a shepherd, and so he's saying, I want you to go back to Egypt and lead my people out of Egyptian bondage. But Moses, even after this encounter with Christ, gives five excuses for not going. That's the reason why I started off with what I said. We have no excuse when you look at the resources that we have in him. Having encountered God, then he sends us out to to be a blessing, and so he gives these five excuses for not going. And here's his first excuse. His first excuse, so he said, I want you to go now, now that you've encountered me, I want you to go to back to Egypt and lead out my people, the Israelites, out of that enslavement. His first excuse, he says is, well, who am I? Who am I? Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, we studied this last week, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? He's a little self-absorbed here. He's just had an encounter with God, the living God, the creator, sustainer of the heavens and the earth, and he focuses on himself. 
And, uh, and so uh, we need to talk here just a little bit about identity because I think he's got some identity issues going on here. And so we need to define identity. Identity is your fundamental core trust and the source of your value and worth. So your identity is your fundamental core trust. In other words, what are you living for? Fundamental core trust, what are you living for? And then the source of your value and worth. How do you evaluate whether you are realizing what you are living for? Are tracking with me? Stay with me. We're going to dive into this pretty deep here this morning. So your identity is based on living for something, and your self-worth is based on whether you're achieving it. So your identity is, what are you living for? And then are you achieving what you are living for? Now, there are two different kinds of, uh, of identity that are, that are prevalent or predominant in our uh, American culture. And uh, there is the traditional identity, and then there's the modern identity. We're, we're general categorizations. Neither of these are Christian. Neither of these are Christian. Let me define, first of all, the traditional identity. The traditional identity is, is outside in. You are your duties. You sacrifice your desires to fulfill your duties for the greater good of your marriage, your family, society, community, team, etc. And then the people within those groups bestow honor on you. That's, that's where you get that, that self-worth. It's about following the rules and fitting in. That's the traditional identity. Now, the modern identity, which you will, you will probably say, well, yeah, that's, that's prevalent in our culture today, is inside out. You are your desires. You follow your heart. You be true to yourself. You determine right and wrong for yourself. And you demand that people in, in society recognize, align, and sacrifice for you. You and you alone are the decisive validator of, of, of yourself and, and, and the culture also. You're wanting the culture. The culture is supposed to accept you for who you are. It, it's about being tolerant, open-minded, and, and standing out. Where the first one's, it's about following the rules and fitting in. The second one, the modern identity, is more about being tolerant, open-minded, and standing out. Now, here's an easy way to just remember both of these because I'm going to use these couple other times as we work through this study. Easy way to remember that traditional, traditional identity is, is duty over desires. You're going to fulfill your duty regardless of your desires. Whatever you feel, it doesn't matter. You need to do what you're supposed to do. That's the traditional. The modern is no, 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 no. It's desires over duty. Easy way to remember that. Now, we need to go back to the story of Moses. Moses was raised in, uh, in the royal Egyptian palace, had all the physical, uh, social, financial, and political capital he, he would ever want or need. But he left that and sought to deliver his own people, the Israelites. We saw that in chapter 2 of Exodus. And he sought to deliver his own people, the Israelites, from Egyptian enslavement, but fails miserably. He kills an Egyptian slave master, goes on the run as a, as a fugitive, and then ends up in the wilderness. The dude is struggling with an inferiority complex, would you say? He's like, he's immediately, he's, he's encountered the living God, and he goes, but who am I? So he probably went from kind of more of a modern identity to more of a traditional identity. 
So traditional identity is duty over desire. He pushed the desires aside, said, man, I'm going to save my people, took matters into his own hands, stepped out to try to do that, failed miserably, and now he's a fugitive and he finds himself on the backside of the desert. And, and so he's struggling with this inferiority complex. Keep in mind the wilderness, as we said the last couple of weeks, the wilderness is a place of loneliness, obscurity, failure, loss, pain, and struggle. That's where he is. So it only makes sense that God confronts him, says, man, I want you to go and, and lead my people out of Egyptian bondage. He's like, well, who am I? I can't do that. Now, notice God's answer to that. You have my presence. That's your next fill in the blank on your notes. You have my presence. Look at verse 12. He said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. The mountain he's talking about there is Mount Sinai. He's, they're going to come back to that mountain. And that's where God's going to really reveal himself to, to them in a powerful way. That's where they get the Ten Commandments and God establishes his covenant with those people. Now, here's what I want you to do. This is pop quiz time here at Desert Breeze. If you've been with us any length of time, you know the answer to this. If you don't, You need to, okay? So I, I, I don't know. I didn't know what to say there, but just other, you just need to know this. So, so I'm, that's the reason why I keep asking you these questions. So turn to the person next to you. I've got two questions for you to discuss. Um, the, the first question is, what is the most frequent command in the Bible? And the second one is, what is the most frequent promise in the Bible? What is the most frequent command in the Bible? What is the most frequent promise in the Bible? Turn to the person next to you real quick and ask them. <laughs> I love it. I, uh, okay, what's the most frequent command in the Bible? Anybody? Fear not. Fear not. Fear not. Most frequent command in the Bible. Fear not. What's the most frequent uh, promise in the Bible? I will be with you. That, I mean, that, that, in essence, that's the Bible. The whole Bible is like, fear not, I will be with you. Fear not, I will be with you. Some of you needed to hear that this morning. You don't need to have the fear in your life. You need to understand, you have his presence. That's what Moses is doing. Who am I? Is he a little bit afraid? Yeah, of course he is. He's got an identity issue going on here. There's, a, there's major... Um, inferiority complex going on. I gave you a couple verses here. Joshua 1.9 is a beautiful verse. That would be a good memory verse for you. Also, Isaiah 41.10, if you've ever memorized that one, that's a good one too. He says, fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will, how does that go on? I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Man, that, those are powerful verses. Listen, if you lived in the reality of those verses, you wouldn't have all the anxiety that you struggle with. You know who you are. I know who I am. I struggle with way too much anxiety at times too. I mean, we all do, we all struggle. But he's with us. Fear not, I am with you. The other verse is, is Joshua 1, 9. That's before they go into the promised land. And he says, I've commanded you, don't be afraid. Be strong, be courageous, because I am with you. I mean, he just really emphasized that powerful verse. Now. Let's talk about Christian identity here. So I've kind of established here for you the world's identity, both the, the traditional and the modern. But let me give you the Christian identity. The Christian identity um, 
And let me do it in reverse order here. Who is, as a Christian, who is your decisive validator? In other words, are you achieving what you are living for? And then what is the basis of that validation? What are you living for? So we've kind of reversed the order here a little bit. So what are you living for? And who's the validator that tells you that you are indeed living the way you should be living? That would be your identity as a Christian. Here's what's amazing about the Christian life. This is what was so stunningly beautiful to me a number of years ago, is that the Christian identity is the only identity that is received and not achieved. It's received and not achieved. It starts with the validation before the performance. That's, that's how it works. It's just the way it is. Now, we often, we often confuse that and, uh, and let me give you an example of that. A great example of that would be Peter. In Matthew 26, remember when Jesus was, just before he was gonna be hanging on the cross, he told all of his disciples, he said, all of you will fall away. Remember what Peter said to him? He says, I will never fall away. No way. I'm committed to you, Jesus. And then what did we see Peter doing in the garden when the soldiers came in to apprehend uh, Jesus, G, uh, Peter pulls out his sword and cuts the dude's ear off. He's like, I'll show you. I'm committed to you. I'll show you that I'm committed to you. Now, what's interesting here is that Peter's identity was based on his love for Christ, not Christ's love for him. That, that's why he was, uh, that's why he's, he was jumping out. Trying, he was trying to prove himself to Jesus. I'm committed. I'll show you I'm committed. And Jesus said, hey, put the sword away. What are you doing? This isn't the time for that. He heals the guy's ear. So it's, it's kind of fascinating as you see that. If your identity is based on your commitment to Jesus, you'll cut off people's ears. That's, that's, that's the lesson. I mean, you, listen, you're going to take matters into your own hands. You're going to try, you're going to work hard. You're going to be a workaholic. You're going to be a perfectionist. You're going to be performance driven. You'll never be able to do enough. You're just going to be driven, oh, I gotta, I'm going to prove, I'm going to prove that I'm, I'm a Christian. You don't have to prove anything. It's already proven in Christ. Okay, now let's go back to the story of Moses. What did he do when he took matters into his own hands and he saw a, a slave master, an Egyptian slave master beating an Israelite? He jumps in there and tries to take control of the situation. And he kills the slave master and buries him in the sand. Isn't that crazy? What was that about? He's trying to prove himself. If you were to look at most of your behavior and why you do what you do, typically it's driven not out of a sense of security and significance in Christ. It's typically trying to prove that in some form or fashion. That's what's going on here in this, uh, in this story. Every human being is desperate for validation, acceptance, love, worth, and value, regardless of the ups and downs of our performance. Every other culture or religion, traditional or modern, gives you an identity based on your performance. This is what separates Christianity from every other major cult and religion of our world today. It's all performance, and then you get the validation. You need to perform, here's the list, you perform, and then God will accept you. You get the validation. Christianity is just the opposite of that. In the gospel, 
in the gospel identity, the validation comes before the performance. The validation comes, the verdict is already in on you and I. You want to hear what it is? Here's the verdict. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That's the verdict. Here's the verdict. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. That's the verdict. That's what he, he loves you. He adores you. He gave his life for you. That's the verdict. The verdict is in. Now out of that comes your performance. Now the reason why your performance is jacked up is because you don't believe the verdict. And so you always go back to the verdict to transform the performance. You don't work on the performance. I'm going to try harder because you get into this performance trap. It's because you don't actually believe and you're not living in the reality of of his value of you and how much he loves you and what he did, the, the indispensable and costly sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It's pretty profound. I've struggled with this for decades in my life. It took me a long time to really try to understand this. And I realized, and I would catch myself from time to time living out of a, a traditional or a modern identity. And so that's what you got to do. You got to catch yourself doing that and you got to replace it with, with a gospel identity. Say, wait a minute, I can say no to those people because even if they don't like me anymore, I need to because I need to honor Christ in my decision here. And so, so it, it changes your whole way of doing life. And, and so... Here's an example of it. We'll eventually get to it, but Exodus chapter 19 and Exodus chapter 20. How many know what Exodus chapter 20 is all about? Anybody know what Exodus chapter 20? Ten commandments, ten commandments. What precedes Exodus chapter uh, 20? Exodus chapter 19. Yeah, okay, got that. Uh, And that's covenant love. Actually, Exodus chapter 19 is covenant love. So he takes them out of Egyptian bondage. They're they're heading into the wilderness. They come to Mount Sinai, and the very first thing he does is he establishes his love for them. And he goes, I love you. You are my people. I have rescued you, and now this is how I want you to live, Ten Commandments. You reverse that? That's religion. What are you trying to earn? You don't have to earn it. It's been already earned for you. God... Uh, Jesus got what you deserved on the cross so that you get what he deserves. It's pretty amazing. That's the, so that's, that's the gospel message. I shared last night. I don't know if I want to take out the time to do this. We've got more stuff to cover, but I'm going to do it anyway. Okay, whatever. Um, I, I shared the story of the woman caught in adultery because I think it's a great illustration of that. Woman caught in adultery, uh, John chapter 8. Remember when the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus? They caught this woman in the, in the act of adultery. I'm still trying to figure out where's the guy in this because it takes two to commit adultery. But they bring the gal in front of, uh, in front of Jesus and they try to trap him. And they say, Jesus, uh, the law of Moses says that uh, if you're caught in adultery, we should stone this woman. What, what do you say? And so he gets in the sand, starts kind of messing around. And, and then they keep pushing him. And eventually he says, he is without sin, throw the first stone. And so immediately it's like, oh my goodness, we're not without sin. We're like Kerr. So one by one they exit. Finally, it's just Jesus and the woman. Jesus walks over to the woman and says, where are your accusers? And she says, I have none. And then he says so profoundly, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. There's the validation. There's the verdict. Go and sin no more. There's the performance. There's the performance. So anytime our performance is messed up, it's only because we don't really believe the validation. We've got to come back to the validation. Come back into his arms. Come back into his love. 
Experience him, know him. Believe me, that'll change your behavior. That'll change uh, how you're living out, how you're responding to life. If I really believe that the God of the galaxies loves me, cares for me, is working all things for my good and his glory, that's gonna change the way you respond to the circumstances of life, to the temptations of life and to the trials of life. It just makes sense, doesn't it? But we don't believe that. We don't. You don't believe it, I don't believe it, we struggle with it, that's why we get together week in and week out so we can pound this deep into our heart because we need all the help that we can get. Now, okay, so you thought, if you thought that was gonna be enough, so his first excuse, who am I? God's answer, you have my presence and uh, so do you think that he's ready to go now? Nope, he's got another excuse, excuse number two, number two, second excuse, but, but who are you? Who are you? And and that's a valid question because oftentimes it's not so much about us, it's about we don't know God. And notice what he says in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? Now, you've heard me say this before, the deeper the theology, that's why we spend so much time really diving deep into God's word, The deeper the theology, the study of God, the higher the doxology, that's worship, on intimacy with God, the more soul-satisfying and life-liberating the psychology, the healthier you're gonna be. So you need deep theology that stirs high praise and worship of God, and that's what begins to satisfy your soul and liberate your life psychologically. Here's God's answer. You have my power. Look at verses 14 through 15. I've kind of just summarized it. It's much more than that, but he's just saying, I'm the most powerful person in the universe. Uh, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, by the way, that capital Capital, all capital letters, L-O-R-D, is Yahweh. That's his personal name. And the definition of his personal name is I am that I am. His personal name is used in the Old Testament close to 7,000 times. Quite a, quite a few times in the Old Testament. Personal name, God has a name. Yahweh is his proper name, like Peter, James, or Ray, or, or whatever. We can know him. He has a name. He, we can have relationship with him. And he's basically saying, I am that I am. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. So he's unchanging. Thus, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So you need to remember this. And part of our problem is that we forget this, and then we also need to pass it on to the next generation. Now, I am that I am, self-existent, transcendent, independent God of the universe. I thought, man, how in the world can I emphasize that? We talked about it last week. I I want you to get that. I am that I am. God is. He's absolute reality. You exist because you you breathe air into your lungs. Your heart beats because he exists, because he's he's the cause. We are just the effect. Here's a list of things. God's absolute being means he never had a beginning and will never have an end. 
Never has a beginning, never has an end. He is absolute reality. There is no reality outside of him unless he wills it or makes it. He is utterly independent. He needs no support or counsel. Everything that is not God depends totally on God. All the universe is nothing compared to God. We're nothing compared to him. Isaiah 40, 17. God is constant. He is the same yesterday, today, forever. Perfection cannot be improved. He's perfect. He is the absolute standard of truth, goodness, and beauty. He does whatever he pleases, and it is always right. Whatever he does is always right, beautiful, and in accord with truth. He is the most important and most valuable reality and person in the universe. And so, intimacy with him is life's most satisfying reality. So imagine this, imagine that the Milky Way galaxy was the size of North America, where we live, and this, this bottle right here represented our solar system, North America, Milky Way galaxy. This is our solar system, and within this solar system, a speck in here would be Earth. It would be Earth. And, and, and in fact, the Milky Way galaxy is one of about 100 billion galaxies. One of 100 billion galaxies. In fact, now with the Hubble telescope, they, they believe possibly of 200 billion galaxies. Did you also know that it would take about 2.3 million Earths to fill the sun? So 2.3 million Earths to... So we're small, we're specks. We're just little dirt clods here in, on this planet Earth. We're nothing. So when you really think of the vastness of the universe, when you think of all of that, all of that God, God created out of nothing, he spoke that into existence, that's a little bit of this idea that he's wanting him to understand. You have my presence, you have my power. Do you understand who I am? Do you understand who you're dealing with here? And... If you can begin to understand that, that the only eyes in the universe that matter looks at you and values you in Christ Jesus more than all the wealth in this world. That, that, that's why I love, you know, I've quoted this, probably quoted it too many times, but it's uh, Psalm 8 where he says, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the stars and the moon, how you have set them in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And that, that's what the psalmist, that's what David is saying. He says, are you kidding me? When you look at the vastness of the universe and that I have your undivided attention and I have your unconditional affection and I have your unhindered action working for my good and, and your glory, that blows my mind. I think about that maybe once in a while, but I, that's crazy. That, that's the point that he's trying to get across here. If someone you respect a little says you're great, it feels good. Would you agree with that? If someone you respect a lot says you're great, it doesn't just feel good, it feels great. Unless you're esteemed by someone you esteem, you'll have no self-esteem. In fact, I think this is a Jonathan Ed Edwards quote. He says, the praise of the praiseworthy ab is above all rewards. 
So when you get praise from those that are praiseworthy, that is above all rewards. So when someone you adore adores you, it's like heaven. And I'm I'm telling you, I'm telling you, the creator of the universe adores you. He gave his life for you. You can have relationship with him. That's what he's telling Moses. Moses, you have my presence. Moses, you have my power. Did you notice his his first excuse? Who am I? God's answer, you have my presence. Yeah, but who are you? Like the most powerful being in the universe. That's that's what he's saying. Now, now you'd think that would take care of his issues, but we're going to have to go to. But let me give you a summary. So verses 16 through 20. So he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go and gather the elders and then tell them what I've told you. And then you guys are going to confront uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt, but he's not going to let you go until I put a lot of pressure on him. But then eventually he will let you go. And, and in fact, he'll not only let you go, but he'll pay the way because you're going to plunder them in the process. And so that's kind of where that rest of that ends. Now we finally made it to chapter four. I told you it was going to be a long one. Okay, here we go. So chapter four, third excuse, third excuse. What if I fail? This guy's a basket case, man. I mean, I'm thinking, but I, I mean, it gives us all hope, doesn't it? Does it help you a little bit here? It's like, what if I fail? What if I fail? And notice, uh, so what he says here, uh, chapter four, verse one. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Now, let's talk about our emotions here a little bit because he's, he's expressing some uh, negative emotions here. He's experiencing, he's afraid, he's fearful. What do you do with your uh, negative emotions? You go medicate? You go load up somewhere? Gotta go to a movie? You, you uh, what do you do? What do you do with your emotions? You're doing something with your emotions. Now, what's interesting about the Christian life is that Christians have a unique approach to handling emotions. Let's go back to the traditional identity. A tr- traditional identity type people, they typically suppress feelings. Doesn't matter what you're feeling, just do your duty. Remember, duty over desires, duty over, over feelings. Just shove them down inside of you. You've got to go to work, whether you feel like it or not. Okay? That's, that's the traditional view. The modern view is, what do you think the modern view of feelings, dealing with feelings is? Express your feelings. Yeah. Express feelings unrestrained. Your feelings control you. Follow your heart. Let your feelings rule. Desires over duty. That's why you hear, I hear this a lot, couples who say they have fallen out of love and have found someone else. Isn't that interesting? It's because it's actually they don't even understand their feelings and their feelings, it's really when someone says that, it's actually more about lust than it is love. Lust lust is more about getting, it's more consumer. Love is about giving, it's more about covenant. Now, now let's talk about the, the gospel identity. So think about it. So the traditional view is to stuff feelings. It's duty over desire, over feelings. And the modern view is to just express the feelings. It's feelings over, over duty. Now, the gospel view is totally different. And this is what you see. This is what actually Moses is doing. 
And uh, gospel identity basically teaches you to give your feelings to God and reorder them, reorder your feelings by loving God with all of your heart, by loving him with all of your heart. What's the biggest book in the Bible? Psalms. How many Psalms? How many chapters is the book of Psalms? 150. Raw emotion. There's multiple psalmists. David would be one of those. But what are they doing? They're taking their emotions, their raw emotions to God and loving God with all their heart and reordering their, their emotions because their emotions are all out of whack. Inordinate desires, inordinate emotions. They've got anger and anxiety and despair. What do you do with that? What in the world do you do with your negative emotions? Do you stuff it? Don't do that. Do you express it? Don't do that. Take them to God. That's what he's doing here. You take them to God. Disordered loves are the cause of inordinate emotions. When our emotions are out of order, when I'm in despair, when I have anxiety that's, that's keeping me up nights, when I have bitterness, that's because of disordered loves. If I love my wife, for instance, if I love my wife more than I love God, I will crush her under the weight of my unrealistic expectations and be inordinately upset when she doesn't affirm me like I think she should. We do it all the time. It took me a long time to learn that. I was trying to get from my wife and from my kids and from my job and from my pastoring what I should be getting from, from God. And when I did that, when I tried to get from something in creation, that I, what I should have been getting from the creator, it created all sorts of inordinate emotions because it was letting me down. Of course it will. Of course it will let you down. That's what drives those inordinate emotions. It's meant to let you down so that you take those emotions to God and you reorder your emotions by loving him and finding satisfaction in him. And then, and then you can respond to the circumstances appropriately. That's just good psychology. I told you this was going to be a counseling session here this morning. Maybe I'm counseling myself huh? more than you, but I think we all need that. Okay. Whoo. That was a good one. So God's answer, you have my provision. You have my provision. You have my gifts, my desires. I've given you desires, abilities, personality, experiences. Okay, so, um, so you have my provision. What does that mean? Let's look at verses uh, two through nine. This is a little bit lengthier, a little bit harder to track with. He says, the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? So he just said, what if I fail? And he goes, well, what do you have in your hand? And so a staff, and he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. I love that. That's good. Yeah. You'd run too. It's like, ah, snakes. Anybody not like snakes? Kind of like me. It's like, oh. But check this out. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. Don't ever do that, okay? Don't ever catch a snake by the tail. That's terribly dangerous. You always do it by the head, if you can. 
So he put out his hand and caught it, and he became, it, it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak, and he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then he said, put your hand back in, inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the, on the dry ground. Now, what in the world is that all about? <clears throat> I think this is what he's trying to say to him. He just told him, he says, uh, his first excuse, who am I? God's answer, you have my presence. Second excuse, who are you? You have my power. Third excuse, what if I fail? Are you kidding me? Give me the little bit that you have and I will work miracles as a result of it. Whatever it is that you have, give that to me. In fact, I wrote down, so I am the God who makes that which is dead alive. I am the God who heals. I am the God who is the very source of life. I can take the little bit that you give me and use it powerfully. So one of my illustrations that I put on your notes is John 6, 5 through 13, where Jesus feeds the 5,000 with what? The boys, five loaves and two fish, and what do they have left over? 12 baskets uh, of fragments. 12 baskets of fragments? What? Talk about multiplication. This is all he's saying. I have given you some giftings and skills and desires. Put those in my hands and let me work miracles. That's what he's saying. That's all he's saying. Now, I gave you some other verses, and there's something about that when you begin to do that. Uh, Proverbs 11.25 says, Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. Given it will be given to you, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. There's something about when you become generous, when you begin to give, God begins to pour into you. I've seen it. I've experienced it, many of you have too. So you thought maybe that that would take care of Moses' uh, excuse making, and no way, uh, because so uh, he, we have his presence, power, provision. His fourth excuse is, what if I have disabilities? Notice in verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Okay, so here's God's answer. You have my purposes. You have my purposes, you have my plan. That's the next fill in the blank. Okay, let's see if we can knock this out. Some of you aren't gonna like what I'm gonna say, okay? I'm just gonna tell you straight up. Um, and so... Look at what he says in verses 11 and 12, what God says to him. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I the Lord? Wait, 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 wait. Did, did he say he makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I the Lord? 
I thought all that came from the enemy. I thought the enemy was working in my life, and therefore, wait, 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 wait. He says that he's, he said that he's the source of that. Yeah, God's sovereign. Anything that the enemy does is within restraints. We know that based on Job. We know that throughout the scripture. So ultimately, what, what God is saying here is that, yeah, he's, he's actually, either directly or indirectly, he's, he allows those things, and God is sovereign over our lives. And even our disabilities, he can either heal those or he will use those for his glory is the bottom line is what he's saying here. I mean, and as I begin to understand this and try to explore this a little bit more, and uh, let me give you a couple verses here. Remember Job? Remember the beating that he took? When he gets to the end of the book, he says, I know that you, you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Ecclesiastes 7.14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. There's an interesting story found in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, where Jesus heals a man born blind. The disciples ask, well, well, who sinned? Was it this young man or was it his parents? You remember what Jesus said? Neither. Neither of them sinned. This happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So, so here's the bottom line. And, and this is what Moses, Moses, I made you that way. And when you demean even your disability that I've allowed you to continue to have, I could have healed that, but I've chosen not to. When you demean that, you're demeaning my work and my purposes that I want to do in your life through that disability. I can use that disability to put on display my glory. That's what he's saying here. And so what he's asking, and the question we have to ask is, are you going to let God write the script for your life? I think you should pray. There's no doubt. But there are times, sometimes he calms the storm. Other times he calms his child in the storm. Either way, he will use all of who you are for his glory. Can you accept all that he sins, whether you understand it or not, because you trust his loving, wise control of your life? Here's another question. This is a harder question. Are you a supporting actor in his story or are you wanting him to be the supporting actor in your story? Who's calling the shots? So that's what, um, that's where he's getting. Okay, so, okay, Moses. Moses is ready to go now. He's ready to go because he's dealt with all of his excuses. No, number five. Number five. Pastor Ray, you're killing us with this text. I know and I'm loving it, every bit of it. Excuse number five, what if I don't want to? Oh, now we've gotten down to the bottom line. I don't even want to. And that's typically when you finally get to it. It's not that I, I can't, but I won't. Look at verse 13, but he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Basically, I'm a sinner by nature and by choice. I want to be the God of my life. I want you to be the supporting actor in my story. That's the bottom line. God's answer, you have my people. You have Aaron and the elders, basically is what he says in verses 14 through 17. Then the angel of the Lord was, then the anger, I'm sorry, then the anger of the Lord was kindled. Is God ticked off? Does he, does he get angry? He's finally just like, man, I mean, 
the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. I mean, this is a perfect example of Psalm 103.8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, a couple, couple more things here. And we're going to reach the end of the study, and I'll give you the rest of the fill in the blanks is that deeply insecure people, this is, uh, all of this is important. I'm gonna get to a point, uh, a part here that's really, really, probably the most important thing here about how we deal with this uh, low self-esteem and this self-absorption that we see in Moses. But deeply insecure people try to do three things. When you're insecure, you're gonna try to do three things. You're gonna, number one, you're gonna try to dominate. Deeply insecure people dominate they dominate conversations, they dominate, they come in and want to know that they're here. And that's what Moses did originally. He tried to dominate the circumstances. He took matters into his own hands. He was a control freak. Insecure people are control freaks. We all are like that from time to time. So that's one thing. Deeply insecure people try to do three things. They try to dominate. Number two, they try to do anything to get approval. And you almost see that happening in Midian when he, when he was a fugitive in Midian on the backside of the desert. He almost tries to kind of win the approval, and he does, and he gets a wife over it and, and does all of that. And so that's what insecure people do. But the third thing that insecure people do is that they just withdraw. And that's where he is. Well, I'm, I'm not gonna go to church. I'm not gonna even show up. I don't even wanna be around people. People bug me anyway, and so I don't even wanna be around them. It's because you're insecure, that's why. Because you actually need people. But, but this is what you need to know, and here's the, 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 the really important part of this. Helping a wounded person out of an inferiority complex into a superiority complex by telling them to look out for number one keeps them stuck. God never says that to Moses. He never says, look out for number one. Moses, you need to start listening to Tony Robbins a little bit more. You know, the positive power, positive thinking, and you read a few more positive power thinking books. Come on, you can do it, Moses. Come on, you can do it. It's like he doesn't do that. Our churches in America today are filled with that kind of teaching and preaching. And it has nothing to do with the gospel. You can do it. Come on. It's all about performance. It's all moralism. He never says that whatsoever. What does he do? See, here's, here's our biggest problem is, is self-absorption. The essence of our sin is that we're, we're a selfie society. Woo! Check this out. Look at me. And we do it in two different ways, superiority or inferiority. Superiority, we boast. Boasting is, I deserve admiration because of how much I've accomplished. Look at me, everybody. Or it comes in the form of self-pity, inferiority complex. I deserve admiration because of how much I've suffered. Woe is me. Both of those are self-absorbed. You don't take a person with an inferiority complex and move them into a superiority complex by telling them, look out for number one. 
because they're, they're in the same position. Because life isn't about them. Nothing more miserable than the endless unsmiling concentration on self. The cure to self-centeredness is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less because your heart is full of the glory of Christ. That's the solution. You have my presence. You have my power. You have my provision. You have my purposes. You have my people. That's your focus. That's unbelievably healing. Woo. I'm kind of exhausted here. I, I, I fought a terrible flu this last week or cold or something, so I got through it. And, uh, but man, I'll tell you what, this, is, uh, this message is, has been so beneficial for me, and I hope it's beneficial for you. Now let me give you the fill in the blanks for the rest of this. See, if you, if you have a gospel identity... If you truly have a gospel identity, you're not going to struggle. If God is your ultimate decisive validator, you would never sin, but you do. And you struggle with inordinate desires and inordinate emotions. And, and I mean, you would be perfectly compassionate and courageous and contented regardless of your circumstances, but we're not there. So what we've got to do is we've got to catch ourselves in the midst of those uh, building our life and living out of either a traditional or a modern identity and replace it with a gospel identity. Now, Moses, Moses finally does. He, he returns to Egypt. And so let me give you a, a ministry and mission checklist. And, and here's the first thing. Don't wait, because that's what you see in verses 18 through 20. Moses goes back to Jethro. His father-in-law tells him what they're going to do. He packs up the family, and they're heading to Egypt. So don't wait. No more excuses. Get moving. What are you doing in ministry and missions? That's the bottom line. That's the question. So the bottom line uh, for this message is that if God has called you into intimacy with him, you have no excuse for not being involved in ministry and missions. Ministry is uh, ministering to other believers in a local church family, and then missions is uh, ministering to unbelievers, reaching them and bringing them to Christ. You'll notice that in your bulletin there was this sheet of paper we have no shortage of opportunities for you to get involved. Fill out the paper. If you're interested in any of these, these ministry leaders will give you a call and let you know how you can get involved. Next thing, work hard. Work hard, verses 21 through 23. It's not going to be e easy. The Pharaoh is going to push back. And so that's what he says. It's, it's going to be hard. But your work is never in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. By the way, let me give you a warning. Don't try to do more than what he's called you to do or don't try to do what he's called you to do in your own strength. And that's part of that in, in the working hard. The third point, now this, this is, if you read this, I encourage you to go home and read this next text. Verses 24 through 26 was really a troubling text. Most of the commentators didn't really know how to explain it, but I, I believe this is what it is. I'll explain it in just a moment, but let me give you the next fill in the blank. Don't worry, God is still working on you. Ministry will expose your junk. So in ministry and in life, God will reveal areas of your life that you have neglected. Moses failed to obey the law of circumcision here in these verses, verses 24 through 26, because when you read it, you're going to go, what the heck is that about? That is the weirdest 
part of the story I've ever seen. And, and so Moses failed to obey the law of circumcision. Partial obedience will never do. God will often use those who are closest to us to expose the areas of our lives we need spiritual cleansing. And then here's the last point. Always let your work, always let your work flow from your worship. He's called us worshipers first, workers second. And that's what verses 27 through 31 are all about. Work that flows from our worship will have God's glory and eternity all over it. Let's pray. And so God, you do not call us in to bless us except to send us out to be a blessing. We understand that through this text. Thank you, thank you that by grace through faith in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, we have your presence in our lives, empowering us to be what you want us to be, to do what you want us to do. So as we walk with you and live your word, may we contribute to your work and make an impact in this world, both in ministry and missions, all for your glory and our joy in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys.